We're going to talk about unity. Again, for like the fourth week in a row. Yeah. First week we did unity of the spirit. Right? Then we followed up with unity of the faith and what the Bible actually says about these. And then Sean and Steph last week tag-teamed on unity as it's applied, especially with the gospel, right? And in life groups specifically with some real practical instructions on how to do life group well. Uh, today I want to talk about unity in the mission, which is what it leads to. So just as a recap... <coughs> Oh, I blocked the wrong way. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> the mic's on this side. <laughs> My wife over there, she warned me. She was like, you have that cough, and now that mic is attached to your face, so you need to find a way to block it. <clears throat> and I did. I just, wrong way. Anyway, unity, why? Right? Why is it so important? And we recap that. Scripture tells us in John 17, this is why. It testifies to the deity of Jesus, meaning that he is who he says he is, right? Jesus says that I want to see you united with him in the same way he's united with the Father because when that happens, the whole world will know that I am the one sent from God, that I am who I say I am, that I am the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. That's why unity is important. That's why the scripture harps on unity. That's why it says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That's why Jesus prays for an entire chapter in John over and over for unity among so many different people and groups and areas. And then we looked at Ephesians 4 and all the dynamics of its path through unity. Ephesians 4 is about unity. It's where we get introduced to the, the fivefold gifts that Jesus gives to the church and its purposes. It talks at the beginning of it about us being united under one hope, one faith, one Lord, one God, one baptism, one Father, who's Father of all, through all, in all. That's unity. This unity is not a unity that we create. We don't work hard to create this unity. It's a unity that exists already in God, and we have been invited into it. Or the scripture tells us we've been baptized into it. So when we get baptized, when we pledge our head to heaven, when we say my allegiance is shifted from myself or from anything else you you had your allegiance to, and you say I'm shifting it to the king, to the Lord, Jesus. At that point, you have chosen to unite under his lordship, under his leadership, under his truth, and to be united into the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, along with every other person who chooses to follow the truth in Jesus. So that's the unity we've been invited into. And that's why Paul says we have to make every effort to keep the unity of this Spirit in the bond of peace, which is what binds us together. right? And that's a supernatural peace that is the fruit and the result of being one with Christ. It's a peace that surpasses your ability to understand it. It's the type of peace that when you're in the midst of turmoil and conflict and struggle in life, where most people, anyone without Jesus, would be distraught and begin to despair and lose hope, those who are in Christ, those who know Jesus, have this peace in the midst of it. And it goes beyond our ability to understand it. 
But because it's supernatural, it guards our heart and it guards our mind in the midst of that conflict. And therefore, somehow, those who are one with Christ, those who know him and follow him, are able to operate from a place of joy in the midst of something that most people would be feeling hopeless and desperate and despair in. <clears throat> I got it before the cough came out. So it's important to understand that, that we're united in one faith, one spirit. And remember, the key thing here is the faith does not mean your ability to believe something. That's, that's faith. That's a general understanding of faith. It's the substance of things you hope for. It's the evidence of things you don't see yet, right? Faith is believing in something you can't see because you know it's true. <clears throat> Understand? It's not hope. Hope is different from faith. Hope is hoping for something that you don't possess yet. Right? Faith is believing in the reality of something you don't see yet. <clears throat> I have not seen Jesus in the flesh, but I believe with all of my heart that he is exactly who he says he is and that he is God because I have experienced his truth and his relationship. <clears throat> I put faith in the promises of God because God is not a man that he can lie. He's unshakable. He's unchangeable. He is the greatest truth. Rock solid. He will not disappoint me. So I put my faith in him. Right? But I don't put my faith in any person. In any person. As, as good as their intentions are, my faith is never put in a person. I hope for the best for every person and I choose to believe people but if they were to fail or disappoint me, my faith would not be shaken or shattered. Because <clears throat> I've chosen to put my faith in the rock, right? In the eternal one, the one who does not change, the one who has been faithful from ages past and ages on forever. His truth is solid. It has been an anchor in my life in so many, and that is what we are united under. We are united in this one True faith. <clears throat> but this faith is understood in the scriptures as the way we are to live. The faith is the teachings of Christ and his apostles and the way we are to live. <clears throat> so we're united under that. <clears throat> and because of that, the Bible tells us, Paul reminds us, this is still recap, to test yourselves to see if you are still in the faith. What does that mean? That means you can be living in such a way that you are no longer in the faith. Or that maybe you never were in the faith, that you were just circling around the faith, investigating, not sure what you thought about it, but you never actually committed to this faith. You never actually uh, encountered the truth and love of Jesus. And therefore, you're what Scripture often calls God-fearers or God-seekers. Right? <clears throat> you're very interested in them. But you're also interested in Buddha, Muhammad, whatever. Like, that's the difference, right? Those who have come to know the rock-solid, saving truth of Christ are united in it. <clears throat> so we're to test ourselves. And the, the test was this. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And then Paul says, here's the evidence that you're in the faith. Jesus in you. And you're like, wow. 
Where's that mean? How'd he get in there? Where is he? Is he in there? I don't know. Paul said, test myself, and the evidence would be that he was in me. When you look at Scripture and you understand when they begin to teach what it means for Christ to be in you, it says that Christ would dwell richly among you, that that he would dwell in you, meaning his truth, his life, that you are embodying him, the truth, the teachings, right? The Holy Spirit that's been given to us is a down payment, right? For our future inheritance. There's a lot there, but I don't want to teach on that today because I want to get to unity of the mission. But I wanted to make sure we understood this, that the gospel is the message and the church is the manifestation of it, right? Christ, the Bible says this, that he was the word made flesh and that he dwelt among us, right? In other words, the word is the truth of God. Jesus was the embodiment of that truth for us to see and to learn from and for him to set that example and for him to come and accomplish his mission. But he manifested the truth. And then he called his people to carry on that same work of manifesting the truth. So we have the gospel, which is the message that God became man to save us from the sins we could not save ourselves from. And then he took upon himself the wrath of God on those sins so that we could be made righteous by that act before God and be united with him. And that's where the unity comes in. Before that, there was this veil that separated us from him. We were not united with him. After what Jesus did, he brought us into unity with the Father. If that intrigues you, really intrigues you, but you're still like, hey, I want to learn more about it. We have a course that I put together. It's like 12 to 15 weeks long, depending on how slow or fast you are. You can do it right online. You can talk to me. It's called Redemptive History. And it walks you through the entire story of Scripture showing you the immensity and the beauty and the power of the gospel and and what it is in its entirety. But for today, I want to talk about being united in the mission. Why is this important? Because everything is mission. Everything we do as a Christian is mission. How many of you guys personally know a missionary? Raise your hand if you personally know one. All right, now raise it high so that everyone can see it. All right, look around. These are the people who personally know a missionary. <clears throat> okay, you can put your hands down. Why is that such an incomplete answer? Because of our understanding of missionaries. We have this preconceived, weird idea of what a missionary is. A missionary is somebody who got connected with a mission-sending organization or decided to go somewhere else to do something good for God. But you're not going to find that in Scripture anywhere. I guarantee it. I will bet you whatever you'd like to bet that you can't find that description of a missionary anywhere in Scripture because the Bible has a radically different picture of what a missionary is. The Scriptures call them Christians. It's just true. If you want to see what the Bible calls a missionary, it's right there. Christians, followers of Christ, disciples of the one who's on mission. 
So when we get the biblical understanding of what it means to be a missionary, meaning someone on mission, you should know that the biblical definition of that is Christ follower. Let me tell you why. It's really simple. Christ is on a mission. He came on a mission. He accomplished his mission, and then he launched the mission for all of us. So if you want to be a follower of Christ, and he's on mission, where does that put you? On mission. What does that make you? Missionary. But because the church has been so absent and has literally delegated out its its call, its primary function to different organizations other than the church to do what the church has primarily been called to do, we now have to have missionaries, meaning those special people who really love God and want to really serve him. Well, the Bible tells us those are the only people that it calls Christians. What? You're so harsh, Steve. You're mean. You're so mean. I hate it when you preach. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's it. It's the Bible that you think is mean. Right? And you only think the Bible's mean if what it says challenges you in a way that you don't like. And I say to you, welcome to following Christ. <clears throat> Read the disciples' stories. How many times did they hear Jesus say to them, oh, you guys of little faith. You have such little faith. How long do I have to be with you guys for you to grow in your faith? <clears throat> Would you be offended by that? You'd be offended if I just stood up here and was like, guys, what is the deal with your immense lack of faith? How long do we have to be up here preaching about this before you start to believe? Right? I guarantee you there'd be a line of people waiting to talk to me. See, I want to talk to you. I heard this teaching once. It said, what you said is mean. And then I'd be happy to be like, let's open up the Bible. Let's see what Jesus said. Oh, man, he called these people uh, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites full of dead men's bones. That was polite, right? That was, that was kind. John the Baptist said, hey, to the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, hey, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that's coming? It's all sarcasm. Paul once said to a bunch of Jewish people who were trying to tell Gentile Christians that they needed to be circumcised, He called them people of the mutilation. And he said, I wish that they would just go the whole way. Meaning, don't just circumcise. Cut the whole thing off. Show how holy you really are. You guys are like, you're making stuff up now, Steve. That's not in the Bible. No way that's in the Bible. But again, if you read your Bible, you would have just been like, yeah, he did say that. He says this. Jesus says this. Christian, the word Christian means Christ follower. You can't be a Christian 
if you're not following Christ. And if you're not where he is, you're not following Christ. If he's on mission and you're not, you're not following Christ, which means you can't be described as a Christ follower, which is what Christian means. You can't be a disciple of Jesus if your life's highest priority isn't to become like him. That's what disciple means. It's the the equivalent of apprentice. If you are not working as an apprentice to Jesus so that someday you can do the same work he does and be just like him, then you are not being discipled by him and you are not following him as a disciple. Remember, I've said this multiple times, that one of the Jewish blessings to people who were being discipled was this, to say, may you be covered in the dust of the feet of your rabbi, of your teacher, of the one you're being discipled by. May you be covered in the dust of the one you're being discipled by. That was a blessing. They said, you are blessed if you could be that close to the person you're trying to become like. That's what Christian means. That you are following so close to him, you are pursuing him so fiercely, so intently, so single-mindedly, that when he kicks up dust, you're close enough for it to cover you. And that you consider that a blessing. This is why Jesus said, no servant is greater than their master, for it is enough for him to be like his master. And that's why Jesus said, hey, listen, you guys who are following me, if the world hated me, it will hate you. If the world doesn't hate you, that means you're not with me. Jesus said that. Jesus once said to a a young, wealthy man who just fervently wanted to know how to be saved, and he he had very detailed, kept the commandments his whole life, the law from the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and he came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus said, that's easy. Listen to your teachers. Obey the commands. He said, I already do that. I've done it from the time I was young. What else? And then Jesus looked at him and realized he really does want this truth. And he said, okay, for you, follow me. For you to be saved, I want you to take what you have, sell it, sell it all, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. In other words, come be my disciple, come be covered in my dust, come do what I'm doing. And the scriptures tell us that the young man went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And then he turned around to his disciples right after this, and he said, I'm telling you now, it's easier for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then his disciples looked at him and said, oh my gosh, that is... Who could be saved then? Who could be saved by that standard? And Jesus didn't say, no, don't worry, I make exceptions for some people. For those of you who follow me, I'll make some exceptions. <clears throat> he didn't. He said, listen, with, for man, that it's impo- it is impossible. You rightly assess the standard I just set. It is impossible. Said, but with me, all things are possible. What he was saying was, listen, it's impossible. 
But if you stick with me, if you follow me, I will bring you into the kingdom of heaven. That's what I just told this man. If he was willing to let go of the things that his loyalty was tied to, where his allegiance was, and he chose to follow me, then he would enter the kingdom of heaven with me. I would usher him in by my own works, by my own blood. But he didn't like the answer, so he went away sorrowful. And I'm telling you, there's a million people across the globe right now sitting in a church who go away sorrowful in their heart, but still think they're following Jesus. And it is the greatest disservice the church and the people of God can do to those people to allow that to be believed. So I'm willing to stand up here and say hard things as long as it's true. Because it's the truth of God that sets us free from the bondage that we're in that tells us we're okay. It's a deceptive bondage. And the mission is for us to join with Christ in doing that. Because Christianity is synonymous with missionary, It's so critical for us to understand this, that we don't come to church on Sunday, and then Monday nights, as part of the mission, we come and we do some prayer, and then Wednesday nights, as part of the mission, we go to life groups, and we fellowship, and we have a good time, we hear some good words, and share some stuff, and then uh, maybe on Friday, we might come down and help serve at bingo, or maybe on work nights, we come out, because we're like, yeah, it's part of the mission, I want to be part of the mission. But then all the rest of your life, every day, all day while you're at work, Every day you have at night when you're hanging out, your free time, whatever, there's no thought of mission. Because we've compartmentalized the idea of mission as something we do when we're not living our regular lives. And that is the most anti-gospel, anti-faith concept that has slipped into the church and caused us to literally live impotent lives of pretend Christianity. Where the world looks at us and they don't see anything different. I want you to do a check. When's the last time someone looked at the way you lived and said, how are you so different? What do I have to do to have what you have? And then you were able to respond, it's Jesus. Let me tell you about it. Just think about it. I'm not saying this to to condemn you. I just want you to take an honest assessment of your life. When was the last time a coworker or a friend or a family member that doesn't know Jesus or anybody was so intrigued by the difference of your life and the way you live that they had to ask? Christianity was meant to be powerful. It was meant to be transformative. It was meant to shake the world to transform people, to challenge the status quo. Do you know John the Baptist was just some wild, crazy guy who went out into the wilderness and began to preach. He had no formal leadership training, no formal leadership position. He was just a guy who decided to live according to the truth that he was given. And he didn't shy away from living differently. And because he lived so differently, people were so drawn to him. Massive crowds would come out because he lived 
so differently. And then when he began to preach, the truth began to resonate in these people's hearts. It's what they wanted. And they responded. And then when there was sin in the land, this man did not back down from calling it out in their nation's leadership. He called it out. And as a result, he was thrown in jail and beheaded. And then Jesus said of this man, among men there's been none greater than John the Baptist. Jesus esteemed the life this man lived. But he didn't live the same way as John. I want you to get this. John the Baptist lived so set apart. People accused him of you know, living so ascetically, that's so wrong. And then Jesus came praised John the Baptist, and then lived differently. He didn't live differently in the sense that he was totally set apart and on mission. He lived differently in the way he expressed it. Jesus proclaimed this mission because he was on mission. He came to earth, and at 12 years old, he was already fully aware of what he was here to do. He began doing it. His parents were like, Jesus, what's going on? We need you to come with me. And as a demonstration, he submitted to them. The God of heaven and earth, as a demonstration, submitted to them. And then at 30, he says, it's time. He gets baptized. He gets sent out in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He comes back. The Bible says he came back in power and began his ministry. And the first thing he did was went to find fellow missionaries. He said, it's time to start the mission I need to go find fellow missionaries. And he went and found a whole bunch of young people working blue-collar jobs. He didn't go to the the seminaries. He didn't go to the synagogues where all the religious trained people were, where all the people would have all the Bible memorized and would know all the teachings went. Those were of no use to him. He needed people who would be pliable and teachable like little children so he could teach them the truth, so he could model the truth and that they would come to him like that and follow. And they did. And we have the 12. And these 12, what did they do? They immediately left their jobs, their careers, where they were, and they said, the most important thing in my life right now is to follow him. That's what they did. There's no less expectations of us today. At all. We have to make it our top priority to follow him. Now, you need to wrestle through what that looks like, how that looks like, what God's speaking to you, what he's saying to you in the midst of that. That's fine. I'm not telling you that in order to be a Christian, you need to go in on Monday and tell your boss you quit. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus isn't here in the flesh anymore, so you have, there's nothing for you to do. Keep working unless God says otherwise. <clears throat> what I'm saying is that God has called you to be a missionary to where you work, and to where you play, and to where you sleep, and to where you eat, and to where you serve, and to wherever you go, as you're going. This is the point. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says this. He says to, this, to the church of people, he's trying to get them to be right. He's speaking to those who don't know Jesus yet. He says, we are ambassadors of Christ. As if God himself were pleading through us, saying, be reconciled to God. 
Be made right before God. Repent of your sins and your idolatry and the things that you've held as higher priorities or the things that you've had allegiance to. Repent of your, your, your consuming drive for wealth and, and comfort and prosperity and all that. None of that's bad. As long as it serves the mission that you have fully committed to. So let me drive that home right here, guys. We're on mission with Jesus. That's our only option. The question is, what mission is he on? What mission is he on? Scriptures do a really, really good job telling us. Whenever I ask a question, honest to God, the answer is always in the Bible, just as a cheat sheet for you guys. Okay? I never preach and then ask a question that only I know. Right? What, what do I have in my pockets, precious? Right? <clears throat> That's not what I do. <clears throat> a lot of Tolkien fans out there these days. <clears throat> if I ask a question, it's because I'm confident the Bible answers it. That's why I have such confidence in asking it. <clears throat> <clears throat> when you guys go home this week, right? If you're in first principles, plow away at first principles. Keep doing that. If you're in Antioch, plow away and doing that. I'm giving you some extra credit work. It's really light work. Read Ephesians 3, 4, 5, and 6. Right? Four very small chapters in a small book in the Bible. A chapter in the Bible is the equivalent of one and a half pages of whatever your favorite book is. I want you to think of that. Maybe two whole pages of your favorite book. Okay, That's one chapter in the Bible most of the time. Ephesians 3, 4, 5, and 6. Read them in order, and read them with this in mind. Paul is instructing a church that he established on how to be on mission. He starts in chapter 3 by saying why they're on mission and what the mission is. And then in 4, he says this is how Jesus wants to start and, and keep going on the mission. And at the end of chapter 4 and 5 and 6, he says, this is what missionaries' lives look like. <clears throat> and since we are missionaries, and our whole life is mission, this is why it is so important for how we live. It's why we have to live according to the way that Jesus taught us to. Because we are to exemplify it. So this is what Jesus does. <clears throat> In Matthew 16, 18, what mission is Jesus on? This is the mission. He says he came to testify of the truth earlier on. In the Gospels, he says that. He came to testify of the truth, and it also says he came to destroy the works of the devil. <clears throat> and the works of the devil in Scripture tell us it is to blind, to deceive, to steal, to kill, to destroy... And Jesus said, I came to destroy those works and to testify to the truth. And then they say, what is truth? And he says, I am truth. Right? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection. There's so many I am statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus is claiming, this is who I am. Follow me. Well, in Matthew 16, 18, we have this amazing scene. <clears throat> this amazing picture that happens. Jesus has his young disciples with him. Now, his disciples 
on average, age of the 12, were somewhere around 17 to 20 years old. How do we know this, Steve? From history and from Scripture. <clears throat> okay? These young men were still working in a trade under their father. Only one of them were married that we know of, and that one had no children that we're aware of at the time. For men in Israel to still be working under their father, they were young. They didn't have the ability to establish their own trade yet, or their own household, or their own family, so they're still working in their father's household. That gives us some really clear insight. <clears throat> also this. Jesus takes them up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's really high north. It's this, it's this evil, wicked place where they worship false gods, idols. They have whole temples built to it. They do human sacrifice there. They do uh, erotic sacrifices to their gods and sexual acts and prostitution worship. And it's wholly dedicated to a god called Pan, P-A-N. He's a pagan god, half goat, half man, the goat man. They worshiped him. <clears throat> And so the Jews were always told, don't go up there. That's where the pagans live. That's where the unclean people live. If you go up there, you will be defiled. And you will be unclean. And you will have to come back. And you will have to make yourself clean again through all the ceremonial washings and rituals. So don't do it. God doesn't like that place. <clears throat> That's what they were told. So Jesus, this really young rabbi, really young teacher, he's 32 maybe at this point, says to his teenage followers, come with me, I'm taking you guys to Caesarea Philippi. All right, and you've got to imagine, they were probably, but Jesus, our parents said never to go there. It's really bad up there. They do some horrific things. We will be defiled. Right? And he just says what he always says. Come, follow me. He takes them up to Caesarea Philippi, right in view of the temple of Pan himself, because we know that he was at the gates of hell, and this place that was referred to as the gates of hell was this giant cave opening in a big wall, right? And they built a temple right up to it, and it's the side of a, a, like a small mountain cave area, huge dark cave, water in it, and they put the temple right up against it, and they made their sacrifices into that place. That's where they would throw the people they sacrificed, children, oftentimes. <clears throat> and they would, be, they would decide if if Pan was, was pleased with them by whether or not there was blood in the water after their sacrifice. So what we know today, thanks to some you know, basic archaeology, is that this cave had a water flow. There was water in it, and water would flow, and it would flow down into a tunnel and join with the river that then flowed underground and came out to the other place. So when you throw a sacrificed body into this place, it goes down the, the cave drain, essentially, into the river, and then flows this way. There was also another branch that went out to the sea. <clears throat> so essentially, it was like the luck of the draw, whether there'd be blood in the water, right? Which way did the body go? If they saw blood in the water, then they felt like their sacrifice was rejected by Pan, and they had to make another one. <clears throat> because people back then were straight crazy, right? If there was no blood in the water, they felt pleased. Well, Jesus brings these people, right, his disciples, right up to there. It's like a confrontation in their soul, in their heart. They're like nervous. This is scared. We're told never to go here. It's the elephant graveyard from the Lion King, right? That's the equivalent here. 
<clears throat> and here they are, and they're like, okay, <clears throat> right? People up there do bad things. Imagine going, it's like the equivalent of going to like the roughest parts of the city, right? And this is where they are. And Jesus turns in this place and he says, hey, guys, I have a question to ask you. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they start answering him. Some say that you're a teacher. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're the prophet that we're expecting. And then Jesus looks at Peter, and he asks him very specifically, and he says, who do you say that I am? <clears throat> and Peter responds and says, well, I say that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus looks at him in this, this history-changing moment, and he says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter. In other words, he says, your own flesh and blood, you did not come up with that answer on your own. That was given to you from the Father. That was revealed to you. That truth came straight from the Father to you. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, and upon that rock, and there's this cool play on words here, right? Because in, in the Greek, Peter, his name's Simon Peter, but Peter means little rock. Right? And so it's this Greek word, petros. And it means little rock. And so Jesus says, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Petros. But the Father did. And upon that Petros, which means huge stone, I will build my church. So what Jesus was saying this, Peter, that didn't come from you. But upon the rock of that revelation that I am who I say I am, that I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, I am going to build my church. And the gates of hell that you see right there will not prevail against it. <clears throat> I want you to picture that because you need to understand what the mission is. And if you don't understand this, you don't understand the mission. <clears throat> he said to them, upon this rock, this chief cornerstone that he's referred to later as Christ himself, the very first most important stone you lay before you build something, the chief cornerstone it's called. He says, upon that rock, I am going to build my ecclesia. That's the Greek word that we translate into church. Ecclesia. And not even the most wicked place on the earth for you will prevail against this ecclesia that I am building. So, this is what's important for you to understand. Ecclesia was not a word Jesus created in that spot. Some of you guys remember, I've, I've talked about this before, a hundred times before, actually. Um, is there anything else worth preaching on? <laughs> is this, Ecclesia was a, a, a Greek term that meant gathering, right? If you translate it literally, gathering. Also, set-apart ones, Right? Meaning, like, not set apart separate, but chosen. The ones that are together. Set apart to gather. <clears throat> the Romans had ecclesias all over the place. Everywhere. This was their strategy for conquering and maintaining 
the Roman kingdom. They would conquer a new territory. <clears throat> Let's say they, they pushed into the, the borders of Germania and they conquered a new territory. Well, they would do that through military might first, right? They send in the military, they conquer it. But then they would set up a Roman ecclesia right in the heart of the territory they had conquered. <clears throat> and in that ecclesia, they would put a governor, a Roman governor, and they'd give him a bunch of units of Roman soldiers to guard it and to then enforce Roman rule. And the governor's job and the people that worked for him, their job was to now teach and train the conquered people how to live as acceptable Roman citizens, right, or conquered people in the Roman Empire, according to Roman law, Roman rule. It was called the Roman peace. That's what they referred to their law as. Because as everyone lived according to the Roman law, there would be peace. I want you to hear these. You've got to understand and grasp this because every one of the people Jesus was talking to lived under the oppression of a Roman ecclesia. Pilate, where Jesus is eventually brought to be condemned, is the governor ruling the Roman ecclesia over Israel. <clears throat> They're super familiar with this term. They know exactly what it means. And the Roman governor would then, their job in this place was to spread what, the Pax Romana, right? That's the Latin term for it, the Roman peace, until everyone in the territory submitted to it and they had peace. And then the borders of the Roman Empire would be expanded and then they would go to new conquests to expand it even further, doing the same thing over and over and over, establishing Roman ecclesias to, to establish and then to convert the entire territory to this thing. And then Jesus takes that exact imagery and he says to his disciples who are following him, he says, upon the revelation, the fact, the truth that I am the Messiah, I am the one that's come to save you, I am the Son of God, I am going to build my ecclesia. I am going to establish my place of rulership and governance that will go out and will convert everyone to my peace according to my teachings. And when I do that, not even the gates of hell will prevail in trying to oppose this thing. Even the gates of hell will submit to the peace of Jesus, the very peace that binds us. This is what Jesus was saying. That was his expectation. And the very next things he says to his disciples, because you have to get this, for you to join the mission, guys. He says this, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against this ecclesia. And he says, and all authority in heaven and earth is mine. He's setting himself up to say, I am Lord of all. Everything bows to me. As that truth is known, I want you to know that I am delegating my authority to you. As the rulers of the ecclesia, I am establishing here. And he says, whatever you see loosed in heaven, you loose it here on earth through the ecclesia. Whatever you see bound in heaven, you bind it here on earth from the place of this ecclesia. Do you see the mission here? 
The church is all about the mission, and the mission is all about the expansion of the rule and reign of Christ until the entire earth is filled with his glory. And Jesus chose to do that through us. And you can be part of that us if you consider yourself a follower of Christ. That is what it means to follow Christ, to live with that as your highest mission. Everything else serves that mission. Your job, your career, your bank accounts, your family, your heart, your your soul, your thoughts, your everything has been given to you to serve that mission, the expansion of the rule and reign of Christ that brings true peace. This is the mission of the church, and we are so blessed and fortunate that we, who were once not called sons and daughters of the living God, that now in this very place, we have been adopted and are now known as sons and daughters of the living God. We're name bearers of Christ. Where we go and what we say represents Christ, good, bad, or ugly. And this is why it is so important for us to live the way Christ teaches us to live. Because every word you say and every move you make expresses to the world who needs to see Jesus a Jesus. And that is either an accurate view or an inaccurate view. And that is up to us. So, how do we sum this up? Because it's big, it's huge. This is how we sum it up. This mission is the natural byproduct of having encountered a love you've never known before and had never known since. This love that grasps your soul. Because to know Christ is to want to make Him known. You want to. It drives you. It's in you. You're like, how can I not tell people about this? Do you understand? How can I not? It drives you. It, it, it's a stirring in your heart that stirs you up. In Colossians 3.12, it says it like this. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved by God himself, put on heartfelt compassion and love. Put on Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Can you imagine that? Jesus is teaching us to be kind, gentle, and to forgive. That's wild. I can tell you that's opposite of the world's mentality. The world's mentality says this, I will, sure, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. And then you're like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. You can't forgive and then not forget like that. Right? You know what they mean when they say that. Oh, I'll forgive them, but I will never forget what they did. Well, Jesus, the one who has the greatest right to not forgive us and to not forget, says this, you come to me, you confess your sins to me, I am faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and all your unrighteousness, and then I take that thing and I throw it as far away from me as the east is from the west. 
I throw it into the sea of forgetfulness, and I not only forgive, I forget. And I'm calling you to represent me. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says to his disciples, one of the things that's the craziest thing they probably ever heard, says this, it is better for you that I leave. And you're like, wait, God in the flesh, you're saying we'll be, it'll be better. we're going to be better off if you leave us. And he's like, yes, but this is why. Not better off personally. Will you feel better that I leave? No, you love me and you don't want to see me go. But I'm talking about you in terms of humanity will be better if I leave. Because when I'm here, I am one human in the flesh manifesting the gospel. But when I leave, I'm going to send my spirit. And my spirit is going to possess all of you. And then that goes from one man manifesting the truth in the gospel to millions of people manifesting the truth and the gospel on this earth. And you are going to establish all these ecclesias and you are going to, you are going to proclaim and convert and release the peace of heaven to every place, every end of the earth. That's the mission. And we need to have that. So, lastly, this is... When you read Ephesians 3, 4, 5, and 6, you do that little homework assignment, right? Read and look at what Jesus is saying how to live through Paul. Paul is teaching, this is how to live. I want you to do this. I want you to live kindly. Husbands, love your wives, lay your wife down for them. Wives, submit to your husbands as if unto the Lord. Respect children, obey your parents and the Lord. Like there's this whole teaching. There's a reason because at the end of that passage where Paul is giving instructions to husbands how to love their wives and wives how to love their husbands and children how to obey, He says this about the whole point of it. He said, husbands need to love your wives and wives need to submit to your husbands and love them. And for this reason, because I'm not even talking about husbands and wives, guys. I'm talking about Christ and his church. Your marriage is meant to, to manifest to the world the love of Christ and his church to each other. How Christ loves his church and how the church responds with such love to that love. This is what... One of his disciples said, guys, in John 13, literally the last thing I'm saying, the last scripture I'm reading, I should say. In John 13, 1, listen to what it says. This is John. He was one of the followers of Christ, one of the 12. He lived with him for three straight years, close, followed him, served him. He knew him well. Now remember, he was one of the people Jesus kept saying all those hard statements to. He looked at John on more than one occasion and said, you of little faith, why don't you believe? What are you doing? He rebuked John as being referred to him as a son of thunder because he was so filled with with anger and rage towards outsiders. John wanted to call fire down from heaven to burn people to death because they mocked them. And then John, at the end of his life, writes the Gospel of John. And this is what he says about the Jesus who said all those things to him, rebuked him, called him sons of thunder. You crazy people, how long will I be with you? Right? In John 13, 1, he says this about Jesus. Having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. This is John's testimony. 
that those hard sayings that Jesus said to them was received by his disciples as being loved. They received it as love. They experienced the love of Jesus in that, and he writes about it at the end, saying the testimony of Jesus is this, that even all the way to the end, that having been with us, he loved us to the very end. And then later in that chapter, he says this, quoting Jesus. Jesus said to them, I give you a new command. Love one another. And then he elaborates and he says this. Just as I have loved you, you must love one another. Do you see that? It, this, this eliminates the opportunity for love to be open to personal translation. It is one specific definition of love, and it is the way Jesus loved his disciples. And it's on us to dig into the scriptures and study that with all of our heart until we feel like we have mastered the understanding of how Jesus loved his disciples because the command Jesus gave us is to love others that way. Do you understand? And then he says this, because if you do that, if you love others the way you've been loved by me, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, all people will know that you were trained by me. When I release you with the authority of heaven and earth to establish the ecclesias, they're going to know that you are with me and that you represent me because of this. Because you love others the way you were loved. And that is a powerful transformation. And that is the culmination of the mission. That's the goal. We expand the kingdom of Jesus on the earth and his love to all the ends of the earth. How? By loving people the way Christ loved us. But what happens if you don't know how he loves you? I want to close with this one crazy fun demonstration. You guys okay with that? Like you give me five more minutes? It has to be unanimous. I'm just kidding. It didn't have to be unanimous anyway. <laughs> All right. I need, I need a couple, like two people who are together. They can be close friends or romantic, whatever, that don't know me. Is there a couple who doesn't know me in here? I know that I, there was a bunch of guests. There's people I don't recognize, okay? Right here. Great. Come on up. I need you on stage. Hopefully, you're willing to do that. I need you both. I really do. I need you both. This is a powerful demonstration I'm stealing from Mark Fee. Here, you guys, you stand here, and then you stand on that side of him. Okay. Now, I genuinely haven't met you guys. What's your name? Austin. Austin. Steve, nice to meet you. Kachi. Steve, still, nice to meet you. <laughs> okay. So, Austin, this is what I want you to do. It's just a quick demonstration. As you've been loved by me, Steve Arsenal, love her. Go ahead. Yeah, love her the way I've loved you. Okay. He had no clue what to do, right? He's like, wait, you've loved me? All right, but now watch this. Are, are you, um, how are you with hugs? 
Good. All right, let's do it. I'm going to hug you. Hey, what's your name? Chase. Chase, can I hug you, Dad? Andrew? Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, it's so good to meet you, though. No, like, real hug, real hug. Yep, yep. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I love you. Seriously. Love you in the Lord. Okay, now, Austin, love your wife as I've loved you. All right. Awesome, guy. You did it. That's it. That's all you have to do. Thanks, man. All right, guys. You see how simple but powerful that demonstration is? Right? Like, it's so simple. And this is Jesus. Like, how you don't know how to love people until you know how you've been loved by Jesus. So the prerequisite to even being on mission is to know that you are loved and how you have been loved. To know that Jesus has loved you in word and in deed, through teachings, through surrounding you with people that care for you, that love you, that instruct you. He's provided the church, which is the family of God on the earth. When you come to Christ, you're baptized into his family. Your allegiances shift and Jesus says, you are now mine. Where you were once not mine, lost in a kingdom of darkness, I have now made you mine and I've transferred you into the kingdom of light, which the Bible says into the kingdom of the love of my son. And this is the mission. And once we know this, once we have been transformed by the love of God, the mission becomes the obvious conclusion to our life. Man, I have been so deeply loved by the Father. And He did this for me and transferred me from here to here. It is now my great pleasure and joy to take part in the mission with Jesus to go love others that way. And sometimes that love is a hug when they're down and they're desperate. Sometimes it's a firm presentation of the truth when they're so lost and deep in their own sin and they don't see it. Sometimes it's a hard and long conversation explaining to them why Jesus is God. Apologetics come into play sometimes, but really the heart of it is this. You have been loved and now you're loving them in whatever way the Holy Spirit leads you to do that. You love them, but always unto this, to the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus on the earth. Soul by soul by soul. He who wins a soul is wise, says the scripture. And this is God's desire in Scripture. It tells us that all people would come to know Him. And then He said, guys, I've called you, I've loved you, I've empowered you, and I've appointed you to join this mission with me and go establish ecclesias everywhere you can to the glory of God. That's the mission, guys. This is what I want us to think about. So remember, Ephesians 3, 4, 5, and 6, read it in the context of this message. Listen to the message again. It's online. Then read those chapters and see what God shows you and speaks to you because he's going to talk about the details of your life, the things that he'll point out to be like, listen, this is cool, but it doesn't quite demonstrate who I am. This is, this is not united with who I am and what I want for you. I have something better for you, a place where real joy will come from. <clears throat>